Hey there. The holidays are here, so it's good to know Fred Meyer can save you some time with free pickup on all your fresh favorites. Whether your traditions call for a hearty helping of juicy ham, ample apple pie, or Aunt Sue's legendary twice-stuffed stuffing, Fred Meyer has got you covered. So order for free pickup at fredmeyer.com or the app and get more time to get your holiday on when you grab your groceries curbside. Fred Meyer, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the off-the-cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Join a cast of over 70 uniquely brilliant individuals. Each week, Mike Domish and an eclectic mix of cast members and special guests will engage in mindful and lively conversations about everything from meditation to spirituality to personal passions to successes and failures to relationships to the stuff that makes up the moments of our daily lives. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish. Hi, and yes, I'm your host, Mike Domish, and thrilled to be here this week with a special cast member from the Everyday Mindfulness Show. This week is a one-on-one chat with one of our specific cast members, Sammy Rangel. Now, you can learn all about Sammy's amazing moving life story by going to the show notes at our website on the everydaymindfulnessshow.com. That's everydaymindfulnessshow.com. But we want to get right to Sammy. So, Sammy, thank you so much for joining us on this episode and letting us have a one-on-one with you. I'm excited to be here, man. I can't wait to get started. The last thing I want to do is tell your story because it's yours. And so if Mm -hmm. you give us a brief history of your life story, that'd be wonderful. So I think I'll, I'll practice what I learned at NSA when I went up to Austin with you guys. I was the first, I was the second child uh, that my mom had actually tried to kill. I've just recently learned that, you know, in the last few years and have started putting the pieces of that together. I spent, you know, the, probably the first 10 or 11 years of my life just trying to hang on for dear life. Between 11 and 17, I took things into my own hands and, uh, uh, became a basically a homeless runaway throwaway child and re- devolved rather quickly into a world of gangs and drugs and crime and uh, just survival behavior in and out of institutions, you know, from detention centers, out-of-state prisons, mental health hospitals, foster care, group homes. And by the time I was 17, um, I had graduated to a adult prison for a nonviolent offense. I stole a car when I was 17, I was supposed to do eight months, and instead I spent four and a half years in prison because I, for my participation in a race riot that, that was brewing when I walked into the system. But the last time I walked out of prison when I was 29, and uh, I've made made quite a life of, for myself as a professional helping others. I'm an author, speaker, and doing as much service work as I can. So with, I'm not trying to give away your age to the world, but how many years ago was that that you said you walked out of that prison at 29? Yeah, so I'm today I'm going to, well, this year I'll be 48. So it's, um, I think we're coming up on like 18 years now. And in, really, in many ways, I, I feel like I'm about 18. These last 18 years have really been such a, a new experience, a new version of life. It's every day is something I haven't had before. And I still feel that way. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still developing. And yet I still bring some of the wisdom of 48 years of that kind of life and living to people and think I make the most of it. 
Well, when I first learned of you, uh, there was a men's online men's email listserv, and you had reached out and said, hey, Mike, I'd like to look at your book before we had launched the book, and you wanted to do a test, read it and consider it for testimonial, which I'm grateful for. Thank you. But I did a research on you, and I found you through TEDx, because there was here this was Sammy Rangel, TEDx Danubia. Uh, how did you get to that place? How did you get to where you were being invited to speak? And by the way, for anybody listening, where is Danubia? It is in Hungary. It's in Budapest. So you're you're being asked to fly to Budapest to share your story. How did that? How did you get to there? Well, you know, for a lot of listeners who might not, who might be interested in doing a TED Talk, a lot of us don't realize that it's really by invitation only. You don't really apply. You don't really uh, scout them out. They are word of mouth, and it's it's kind of ironic. Some of my work has taken me international especially around the world of violent extremism and countering violent extremism. And so there was a reporter from Hungary who had found me through some of the CVE work that I was doing with Life After Hate. For those who don't, aren't aware, what's CVE? Countering violent extremism. So we're, we're, we're the ones trying to do the prevention and intervention work on violent extremism, uh, both in the country and abroad. Uh, and I, I partner with Life After Hate uh, as a board member and, and just somebody who's invested in, in helping here in our homeland, people in that far right-wing extremist lifestyle try to find ways out of that, to exit those lifestyles, those hate groups, if you will. And so this reporter found me through some of that work that we were doing on the international level and flew in from Hungary to follow me for a couple of days and, and did a documentary on me. And then she introduced me to, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know this was going on, she did a TED Talk and, and said, you got to meet this guy who I've just done a film on. They TEDx uh, in Hungary reached out to me, and it was about a nine-month process. It was um, a certain feeling out, and I had to pitch the story a few times, and it was very timely because uh, I, I was going through a process of developing my story, and I thought an hour was really trimming it down. And, of course, <laughs> as you know, these guys, these guys were like, no, we've got to get that hour down to 15 minutes. And they actually let me go for 21 minutes when I was out there. So it's uh, that that says a lot about uh, trying to compact your story and make sure that it's concise. Yeah, and, and, and I should have asked in a more straightforward way there. I also meant, how'd you get to that place in life? Where where was the beginning turning point? You shared with us the very difficult and traumatic life that you had growing up, the time in prison and how prison didn't start by making you better. It got ugly in prison for a little while there for you from what you've shared. Where was the beginning turning point? Where did the awareness begin for you? Yeah, you know, I get that. That's the million dollar question I get asked all the time. And to be honest, I, uh, I've i come to determine that it's not a finite point in life. It's a constellation of of moments that finally collide together in just the right way. All, you know, this all this change came from all those chaotic moments finally starting to make sense to me. I was in a program, a treatment program, that was mandated to be in while I was still incarcerated. My intentions were to go to this program and to kind of play the game. You know, just say whatever I had to say, do whatever I had to do so I could get out and resume my lifestyle. However, they introduced me to parts of myself, uh, and I've learned this, and I talked about this in my TED Talk, how it was really all those unknown experiences that I was about to have that I wasn't prepared for, that I couldn't predict or I couldn't know of, that kind of forced me to see parts of myself and parts of my life and ultimately, the realization was that I couldn't escape my own experience. I couldn't get away from it. And that's I spent my whole life up to that point, 27 years, trying to escape my experiences, you know, trying to 
shut it out, trying to deny it, trying to distance myself from it. And as a result of having attempted doing that, I, I believe I put the best parts of myself away. I put I put my humanity away, my ability to, to feel and express and experience empathy or compassion for anyone, much less myself. You know, I had no value of my life, so I couldn't value anyone else's life. And they they introduced me to that. And I think one of the bitter pills to swallow that was really a cathartic experience was recognizing that I had become a lot like the people I hated the most in this world. And in some cases, I had done even more extreme things to others than they had done to me. But I felt completely justified because of my victimization and the way I processed that. So it was thanks to those people. And and to be honest, their strategies and theories and techniques, all that was great. But I think what really reached me, and, and this is what I emulate today, was their compassion for me, their em- empathy for me, um, their ability to, to hear me and not get caught up in the story, which is a form of judgment, to not get caught up in the details, but to understand the narrative that I had created. And uh, like I do today, they helped me deconstruct a broken narrative. And ever since then, I've been writing my own story about my experience and what it means to me. can't change the past, but I've changed what it means to me today. And it's it's the thing that holds me up, to be honest with you. Well, you're the epitome of mindfulness. I mean, when you think about what you were just describing, there is it was you had you had at the time an inability to live in the now, because the past was owning everything. And so, to be present in the now, to understand your feelings, it was that that experience of somebody giving you enough compassion to let you be you right now in this moment. Who are you? What does that look like from what you're sharing? It sounds like that was really the key was without maybe intentional, but this idea that who am I now? Forget the past right here, right now. What am I in this moment? Is that true? I think it's I think it's spot on. You know, I was never raised to believe and I never believed that I had any sort of potential. I had no sense of self. I was denied a sense of self. My body belonged to other people and they could do whatever they wanted with it. My mind was filled with things that that made me see myself as something else other than just a boy, other than just human. I, I didn't have those natural abilities. I wasn't rehabilitated. I think I was I think I was finally developed to become something other than what other people were designing me to be. That's so powerful. I want to pause right there. That's so powerful sure. because you know, a lot of people listening are thinking, man, I've never been through what he, what he's been through. But what you just said right there, many of us have been through, if not all. Are we being who others are designing us to be? And you're saying, hey, when I was living a life designed by others, wow, was that trouble. And I think for everyone listening right now, when we're living our life designed by others, it's trouble. And maybe you're thinking not to the extremes of, of prison or violence, but what kind of mental anguish and pain is it causing us by not being our true selves, by limiting our voices? And you're out there sharing that message right now. You're working with people. How, who are you working with? How do you present that to them? How are you bringing this, you know, that playing it forward concept? Because I know that's what you're doing. Sure. You know, I've, I've been doing this work for about, you know, 18 to 20 years now. And to be honest, this TED Talk has put me on another platform of social media i even today every day mike it's no exaggeration i get no less than five messages from any quadrant in the world people who have watched this ted talk and we end up having long dialogue dialogue that lasts for weeks and weeks and weeks and some of those develop into friendships 
but people asking more intimate questions about their own personal suffering and struggle and, and, and willingness and desire to get over it. And because of the, the transparency, I think, exhibited in, the, in, in my talk, it, it kind of forces others to have to be transparent with themselves as well. It comes from a humble place, you know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that I'm humble, but it, it comes from a place of knowing that this is a life experience that many people have, like what you're saying. This is a human story. This isn't a Sammy story. People suffer, and that suffering is subjective, but it's, it's not apples and oranges. Suffering to you is what suffering is to me, and we all can relate to that. But what we don't relate to is how to dismantle that suffering so that it has purpose. To, for someone to introduce the idea that suffering has purpose, uh, meaningful purpose, valuable purpose, can, can sometimes be a cathartic experience for most people. And I, I think I'm just having genuine conversations with people the way people are having conversations with me. It's just coming from a place of sincere, genuine curiosity and uh, a deep desire and, and drive to to want to connect with others so that we alleviate some of that suffering and, and maybe make it... Uh, so that they can turn that into something that makes all that that history worthwhile to them rather than just baggage or luggage to carry around for the rest of their lives. And what you just said there about suffering can have cathartic purpose. It can have meaningful purpose. Can you explain that? Because everyone has suffering. As you said, that's what I love about you and, and how you share is that it's it's not about Sammy's story. It's why today I have not gone backwards into your life story and said, let's talk about this and what you did in prison, how they got you there. Because I know that's not what you're about. You're not about here's all the details. It's the journey that we can all connect to. So that, that suffering having a meaningful purpose, how does that show itself? What do you mean by that? Are there examples you can give of how that can can reveal itself? Absolutely. So, you know, I've, I've coined this phrase that what, what has held us down will one day hold us up. I think there's no better way to take your wreckage and turn it into material, to take your mess and turn it into a message. But it, to get there, you have to start talking about it. And most of us hold it in. Or the way we talk about it isn't releasing anything. It's just building up more storage of that old stuff. So when we learn to talk about it, we have to find the value and the meaning in it. So I don't mind sharing with anyone that, you know, I was divorced in 2014 after 12 years of marriage, a two-year divorce process. So I'm going into my third year of separation and divorce. And I suffered and I struggled a lot with that. I went from having my children all the time since the day they were born with me to only half the time. And I found myself reliving my, my prison experience in my own home because I felt like I was in isolation, like I was in segregation. Of the 15 and a half years I did in prison, I spent about 11 or 12 of those years in segregation, in, in deep isolation, uh, because I was so violent and aggressive. And I found myself readopting that mentality of being back in the hole, in my own home. I would come home after work, and I would sit down, it'd be daytime, and by the time I moved, it would be time to go to work the next morning. No food, no TV, no light, no heat. And I finally reached out for help, and I realized what was happening, that I was experiencing trauma, post-traumatic you know, stress, in a sense. And so I went for, for help for that. And as a result of that, I realized that all those years that I did in prison, I just put on a back shelf, and I never got therapy for the traumatic experience of spending so much time in prison, experiencing so many near-death experiences, all the loss, all the isolation. And granted, I did a lot of that to myself, but there's still an impact. And so 
going through that treatment helped me not only deal with my past and release so much of what I had just been muscling through, but it also made me more available and more presently, you know, mindful uh, about my current situation and recognizing that I didn't want to, I didn't want to attach my current experience to all the other bad experiences I ever had. And so as a result of going through this process, I today can look you in the face and tell you I'm a better father. I'm a better partner. Like I, I'm more available to my partners. I, I'm learning from the mistakes that I made in my divorce. I'm also learning from the limits and boundaries that I, I failed to set for myself and all of this. And after my divorce, Mike, I realized I had never developed an identity that was just Sammy. I was, I was a father. I was a husband. I was a social worker. I was all these things. I was a helper. But when that was all taken from me, I really didn't know what I had left over for myself. And and I had to go through that process. And today, I love spending time by myself. Today, I love going out in the woods and, and, and taking in the quiet without feeling like I, I need to be around noise or people or distraction. I am closer to my two youngest daughters than ever, ever. I, I do their hair. I paint their nails. I take them to, you know, I'm just doing things. I can do daycare now. I know how to, I know how to establish you know child care for my kids when i'm working and you know like those might sound like minute things but those were things i i had never had to do on my own well they're all moments of presence right you're being present to the moment and being able to experience it and what i love about sammy is that you're you are so authentic and vulnerable and a lot of people hear a story like yours and they're going to watch your tedx talk and before they heard what you just said right there before that about the divorce and the trauma that that brought back forward I think people a lot of times see someone on a TEDx talk or see like you being interviewed and go, wow, they've got it all together. They figured <laughs> it out. And you're saying, no, no, the, it's a journey. Like I'll be figuring this out for a lifetime in some way or capacity and different things will trigger different moments of suffering that lead me to these discoveries. I know for me, about three years ago, I went to an event where I got called out in front of a crowd there was a massive awakening for me that, that hurt. And not that the person did harm, that the reality of truth hurt me. That suffering took me to a whole nother place in my life that I'm internally grateful for. And so I, I agree with you. Are we open to the suffering so we can learn? If, if we're never suffering, we've got to be in a bubble. And that bubble is not the real world. Well, M. Scott Peck, who wrote, you know, The Road Less Traveled and the, such of the, that series of books, he said, all neurosis is it comes from our resistance to suffering. You know, we don't we we don't want to suffer, and so we develop all these schemes and mechanisms that are broken in nature that deny us the natural benefit of what our experience has to offer, and we. <laughs> And we go to great lengths, man, to avoid suffering, but really only create more of the suffering that we're trying to avoid. So it's, I, I, when I become aware that I'm avoiding my suffering, it's, it's a trigger for me to sit down and just let it, let it into my life and, and be kind of excited. To be honest, this is not just me talking. This is what I really believe. I know that when something really bad happens to me, or I'm experiencing something that feels like it's really bad, I know that it's another part of my development. A lot of people feel like they're being tested in life. I don't think so. I think we're being formed in life. And, and that, that process feels like it singled, out, singled us out to do some harm to us, but it's really a part of the preparation for the next, the next phase of your life, the next moments in your life. 
That's beautiful. Are there strategies that you have found work for you in those moments when when you have to pause, take that breath, and help you have the discovery? Yeah, I I think I have to allow myself to to have feelings. You know, I've restricted myself for many years to deny feelings, and so a lot of times I have to just cry, or I have to I have to you know I, I'm very active, so I I go to the gym and I work out really hard just to get out some of the adrenaline. But the main strategy, Mike, the main thing that I have is I have one person in my life who knows everything about me. And I, you know, I call him my, my uncle, but he's more like a father to me. I turn to him in my weakest, most vulnerable, darkest days uh, for support and in other days too. But I, I instinctively go to him and because I know that if I try to do it alone, It'll be years before I come out of that bubble. It'll be years before, so many days will have passed. Nine months passed before I realized I needed to reach out for help after my separation. Nine long months of doing that to myself. And now I don't do it. And I think, so I think transparency is a major key. I have to open up to others. I can't, I rely on others, Mike, because I need the checks and balances. I'm, I'm good at deceiving myself. I've become a master of self-deception. I know that I can't always, especially when I'm, I'm feeling vulnerable and weak, I can't rely on my own intuition all the time. I can get by, I can get through some things, but I know that at some point I need to go touch base. All great advisors, man, all, all have been behind every powerful person in the world. There's always been someone behind the scenes helping people maintain clarity and position. When you said two powerful things there, you said, I've become a master of self-deception. I think our world has taught us all to become masters of self-deception because the social media world, we're always supposed to present our best. So rarely do you see true suffering, vulnerability. You do at times, but it's not common. And so everybody's painting the perfect picture out there. And what it does, it makes it more difficult for people to feel pain and feel it's okay, feel that it's natural and normal because everybody else seems happy. And so we all become these masters of self-deception that I must be happy, I must be. And so I thought that was brilliant you said that. And then you found someone to turn to who you refer to as your uncle. I'm curious, is that person someone that is just purely there to hear you? Or is that person someone that is there to say, whoa, hey, wake up, dude. And there is judgment, but it's like a helpful judgment, a guidance judgment, because there's different people in our lives. There's the ones that just listen. They're the ones that direct us in the way we need to be directed. Do you have two different people or is that the same person for you? No, I, I, first of all, I've, I've got a thousand people who are willing to do just those things for me, right? I've, I've done... You know, if you ask me what's at the root of my success, I believe it's the decisions I've made of who I surround myself with today. I've surrounded myself. It's the only way I've been able to advance and evolve so quickly in 18 years. You know, even in the first 10 years was remarkable. Just I'm surrounding myself with with other experts in life and areas of life that I I want and crave. But my uncle, first of all, what he gives me first is acceptance. He knew me at my worst and he sees me today. And there's a lot there's a lot of difference there, but there are a lot of similarities too. He does tell me exactly what I need to hear, but it it's never tough love, Mike. It's it's always compassionate, it's always empathic. You know, I remember one day I was talking about helping. I was so frustrated with somebody that I was helping because they weren't performing or that oh no, he was telling me a story because he was a, a hostage negotiator for corrections. And he was telling me a story how he started a group for men and women or for men who had murdered women and children. I asked him, I had the nerve to ask him, I said, how could you work with someone like that? <laughs> the irony um, of that moment, the, right? Yeah. Right, I mean, for your, for your me, violent past, that's ironic for someone, right, right. And, and he says to me, he says, 
I, I seem to remember doing that once before, you know, and, and that's how his insight comes. He, he just reminds me of the basic core principles of what he's sharing with me. Most of the people that we direct already know the answer, you know, the strategies and techniques we learn. We're teaching people to, to redirect themselves to their own best interests, their own self-interest in many ways, you know, what, what helps them move along. I, I, I find myself apologizing, but through my actions, because the next person that frustrates me or that person, if I go back and I just love them more, I just I create a different space for me to them as a gift, you know, and, and as an apology. So it's, he's, he's direct, but he doesn't need to be directive. He's, he's genuine uh, and he doesn't need to be bossy. You know, it's, I think everyone packages things differently and, you know, you have to find people that resonate with you. And I think he knows how to get through all my defenses. You know, if you argue with someone, you've, you're playing into their defenses and he's learned to play around those to get around all of those i mean that's how he keeps me grounded he knows that i'm defensive so he's he knows how to get around all of that like he has a key well yeah and it's what's beautiful there is that you found a mentor role model because everything you're describing there is he's role modeling he he i mean he's an he's a wonderful and beautiful example of mindfulness in his the way he lives his life so your number one mentor your turn to is a role model of mindfulness it's it's really beautiful to hear that compassion and love drives that person and that drives you and that's beautiful are there are there books along the way that helped you that that you found man reading that made me look inward or or resources that you to this day are grateful for it's funny you should say that the first time I ever read a book, you know, just of my own free will, not because of school or anything, it was sent to me while I was in Waupon Correctional here in Wisconsin. The first day I got to prison, the prison system in Wisconsin, I, not even knowing, I racked up two years in the hole. I was just a walking rule violation. I, I had broken so many rules just walking into the prison the way I did. So I was in the hole for a long time, and this guy who I didn't know, a complete stranger, he photocopied a book called Prehistoric Mesoamerica, a boring history book, right? But it was about my culture. And he sent it to me, and, you know, I, I'm in the hole. I have nothing else to read. So I read through this book, Mike. And as I read through this book, I realize, I don't realize, but something starts to happen. I realize it in hindsight. I start to read things about my culture that I can be proud of, that, you know, that there was a tribe that helped develop agriculture, that shifted and changed the way we went from a nomadic experience to, to a uh, civilization and how that some of that pottery still in, you can still see the influence it and uh, of other potteries 10, you know, 10, 15, you know, all these years and decades later. And I, I didn't know it, but I had established a goal. And that was the first time I had ever established a goal in my life. I was 22 years old when I read this book, Mike. And I said, one day I want to go see those ruins because I was reading about all these ruins in Mexico. And true enough, two years after I got out of prison, I went to go see those ruins. I never forgot that goal. And I didn't know that I was dreaming. I didn't know that I had that that was a positive outlook. It just happened to me. And it might sound silly, but this book opened up a gateway for me to see another side of the world that I didn't know existed. And then from there, I started reading all kinds of books. You know, I, I read a lot of uh, spiritual books. The Road Less Travel had a lot to do with an awakening of that period for me for, for waking up. I had to read books about parenting, 
about relationships, about because I needed I was doing research, Mike. I was reading for research purposes, like how how to do things, you know, like how right. how to live a normal life, man. And I tell you that it was a double edged sword because some of that was to my benefit, but because I didn't know how to do things on my own yet, I was rigidly sticking to what was in those books and was not I, I didn't trust anything out. And so I was trying to make things fit into this book that wouldn't fit in this book. And it caused me a lot of problems, but I've done quite a bit of reading. I still do. Well, I love what you just said there. I think we all do it, right? And I shouldn't say all, oh, not everybody. I know I do, so I can only speak for myself. And, and I want to apologize over there because it sort of cut you off in the middle of the story okay. when, no, with no, your no, uncle. No, no. So I apologize for that uh, and need to be more aware of that. Uh, you know, and I think so many of us, we read a book and we think, well, this person is the person on it. I must live my life this way. And what we do is we get right again trapped into not being in the now. We think we're being brilliant and and totally aware because we're going to do what the book says instead of saying, what parts of this do I need in my life and how should they appear in my life compared to how this is written? It might not be consistent with the way who I am, but there are parts I can take with it or I need to hear. That doesn't mean I'm not listening to it, but I think you bring up a really good point. When you read lots, and I love to read, you have to be careful of, are you just flipping to the next book and becoming a different person? Or are you you allowing you to come through the book? There's two very different ways to read. As a writer... Uh, I I look for books that expand my awareness, my perceptions of things, and I try to get that from any from anywhere. Uh, I'll read. All, I'm not religious by any stretch of the imagination, but I'll read a variety of religious books because I feel like some of their principles, their core principles, apply. You know, to me, I'm spiritual, so I can relate to some of that stuff. But when I'm reading, I'm I am looking for for an escape from myself. You know, I need I need another way to see myself and to see life and my children. And, you know, I, I read books designed for girls because I, I feel like I'm in touch with some of that inside of me now. You know, and as a father, I have to be somewhat feminine inside. Otherwise, I'm just railroading my kids all the time. You know, I, I want to understand their perspectives and their, their, you know, my daughters are talking to me about things that, in our in our previous years, we never talked about because I'm a different kind of person, you know. So I think the reading has, for me, in part, the reading. I don't really read for enjoyment. I read, read because it interests me. I read things that help me develop myself so that I'm better and more available to people. Thank you, Sammy, so much for all you've shared with us today. You're such a great spirit and soul, and your journey gives so much for all of us to learn from. Th- thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for what you're doing, too. Oh, absolutely. For anyone watching right now or listening right now, you can learn all about Sammy at the EverydayMindfulnessShow.com website, EverydayMindfulnessShow.com. Look into the cast members and you'll find Sammy. And then you can also look at the show notes because you're going to want to watch his TEDx talk from Danubia. That will be in there. And until next time, may you enjoy everyday mindfulness in your life. Three quick reminders. One, please subscribe to the Everyday Mindfulness Show on iTunes. Already subscribed? Then encourage others to join us by inviting them to subscribe to the show. Two, while on iTunes, download all the latest episodes. Three, reviews help more people find out about the show. Would you please go into iTunes and write a review? Doing so helps spread the mission of the show. Thanks. 
We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com and check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.